Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. This summer, when you're going to Nationals Park, make Walters your spot to hang out before the game. Located just across the street from the ballpark, walk on over to Walters. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 1-2 with the infield in. Long drive down the left field line. Will it stay fair? It's back there toward the corner, and it is gone! Victor Robles has done it. His first home run of the season. It's a three-run shot. He's got six RBIs in the game. What a day for Victor Robles. Nationals 11 and the Rockies 7. A career day in four innings for Victor Robles. The kick, and here it comes, swinging a fly ball to right. Playable for Soto toward the line, calling for it. And he makes the catch. And a Curly W's in the books in game one and have their first three-game winning streak of 2022. The pitch. Swinging a line drive, base hit left field. Crone's going to try to score. Hernandez comes up throwing. The throw is cut off by Franco. They'll tag the runner out going to third, but the run will score. Crone crosses the plate before the third out. So it's an RBI single for Iglesias, and the Rockies back in front, 3-2. He's ready, barred to the belt. And the 3-2 on the way. Fastball, he took it for strike three. And the game is over, 98 miles an hour. And that'll do it. It's a split of the doubleheader. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, May 29th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the number one theme to our conversations about the Nats offense so far this season by far has been the feast or famine nature, the Jekyll and Hyde nature, the two-faced nature of the Nats offense, right? The same Nats offense that one game could look so great too often in other games can look so bad. Well, forget about the offense being game to game. How about hour to hour? We on Saturday had a day-night doubleheader for the Nationals and Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park off the rainout on Friday night. The Nats and Rockies split the doubleheader. Nats won game one, 13-7. The offense was outstanding. The Nats lost game two, 3-2. The offense, not so good, especially with runners in scoring position. So the same Nats team that scored 13 runs on Saturday afternoon scored a mere two runs on Saturday evening. Mark, I believe this is called a microcosm. And if Saturday was not a microcosm for the Nats offense this season, I don't know what is. I was going to say, Al, if anybody has been asleep, hasn't watched the Nationals at all, if you've been in North Korea and don't have access, 
to uh, the games or to the podcast, as we know, it can be a little bit tricky to get once you're past the demilitarized zone there. And just wanted to know, what are the 2022 Nationals about, at least from an offensive perspective? You got it in nine hours over the course of this day, because in game one, you saw them at their very best and what they are capable of doing every once in a while. And then in game two, you saw what they pretty much always do the very next game after that. And it's frustrating for everybody because you know the potential is there, but for whatever reason, they just cannot sustain this. This is the craziest stat I've seen maybe all year. The team put this out there after game one. They have now scored 10 or more runs in six games this year. That's tied for most in the majors with the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Cardinals. Yankees, Dodgers, Cardinals, and Nationals. One of these things is not like the other for most 10-run games this season. And then I looked up what they did in all the other games after it. And in all but one of those games, they scored four or fewer runs in the next game. And in, I think, four of them now, it's been two or fewer runs. So this is exactly the pattern they've established. And I don't know if I can explain it or not. It's just really frustrating to see a team, a lineup that on certain days and certain games can look very productive and then instantly the next one look right back where they started. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird deal. The Nats overall have not scored that many runs this season, but it feels like 80% of the runs have come in like a handful of games, you know? It's like an economy where like 2% of the population owns 90% of the wealth. Like that's what this Nats offense is this season. It's either super rich or it's super poor. Like there's really no middle ground. And it's a very strange phenomenon. Uh, The Nats this season now 17 and 31. The Nats late night on Saturday night announced a roster move. We'll be getting to that momentarily. So there's a lot to take in with what happened on Saturday, not just at the major league level, by the way, but multiple prominent Nationals pitching prospects pitched at the minor league level on Saturday. Uh, So we'll be getting to that. But if you have to start with any Nationals player from this doubleheader split with the Rockies on Saturday, Victor Robles probably is a good place to start. So Robles in game one, the 13-7 win on Saturday afternoon, was sensational. Uh, he was an ad starting center fielder and number eight batter. He got on base four times. He had six RBI. This was 2019 Victor Robles on display on Saturday afternoon. He went three for four with a three-run homer, a two-run single, an RBI single, and a hit-by-pitch. Uh, the three-run homer came in a three-run Nats fourth, was to left field on a one-two pitch. This was Victor Robles' first home run of the season. This also was just the Nats' second home run in 12 games. Now, then came the nightcap in the doubleheader, the 3-2 loss. Uh, Robles in that game, starting center fielder, number nine batter, one for four with a single. Now, the single was impressive. Bottom of the fifth, a leadoff full count single off having been down 0-2. He also had a stolen base. But then in the bottom of the seventh, we had D-Strange Gordon on second, nobody out, Nats down 3-2. And Victor Robles made an out via a bunt pop-out in foul territory to the Rockies catcher, Brian Servin. Robles, in this plate appearance, bunted on a 1-2 pitch. An awfully curious situation, especially given how Victor had been batting. And I know that Davey Martinez talked to you guys about what happened in this circumstance after the game. Yes, he did. And look, there's a lot to talk about, Victor, from this entire day. We're going to get to it all here because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, good and bad. But to specifically speak to that bunt situation, the bunt play was on at the beginning of the at-bat. You're down a run in the seventh. The leadoff hitter hits a double. They're trying to get him into scoring position. Once he got to two strikes after fouling it off twice, the bunt sign was taken off. Victor elected to go for it on his own. Davey Martinez was not pleased with that. 
he did that on his own. Yeah, so swinging about well, you know, take a shot, you know, take a shot and try to, hit, you know, get a hit. And when he popped up the two-strike bun and it was caught, it was just this, like, air out of the balloon. You almost couldn't believe that that's exactly what had just happened. And it just was such a fitting thing about this day for Victor. Let's go through everything that he did in the course of the day, okay? Four hits, three singles, his first homer of the year, six RBI, two stolen bases, a hit by pitch, a missed bunt, and an error on a throw to the plate that never should have been made, as Davey also pointed out, in which he missed the cutoff. Man, I'm pretty sure the only thing missing from him completing the super Victor Robles cycle for the day was getting picked off. That's the only thing he didn't do. He did everything else that we know and love and despise about Victor Robles over the course of these two games. He can make you excited at times about his potential and what he can do, and he can just drive you insane sometimes with his usually mental mistakes at the worst times. And you saw it all. He ran the full gamut over the course of this doubleheader. Yeah, I mean, we talk about a microcosm. This day on Saturday was a microcosm of Victor Robles as much as the day was a microcosm for the Nats offense. But with the bunting situation there in the bottom of the seventh on game two, so absolutely shame on Victor for trying to bunt with two strikes on him. But why is Davey having Victor bunt to begin with, with the day that Robles is having? I know he's not having a great season or anything like that, but he was having a good day. Davey's into this thing of if a guy plays well one game, then you got to ride that into the next game. Why not just let him swing away with D-Strange Gordon on second base like that? There are no outs. You're down by one run. I, I don't get why Davey was even thinking about Robles bunting to begin with. That was a case of, you know, it's their number nine hitter. He still is their number nine hitter. And you got the leadoff double. It's late in the game. You're trailing by a run. Felt like get that guy into scoring position for Cesar Hernandez and then Cabert Ruiz and try to tie the game. That was his philosophy. You can agree with it or not agree with it, whatever. But I will say I was not surprised at all. I was anticipating those bunt attempts. I was surprised that he tried it again with two strikes. And, and frankly, I was surprised that he couldn't get any of them down. He's not a perfect bunter, as we've talked about. But you give him three chances, he's usually going to get one of them down. And I was surprised at that aspect of it, that he clearly wasn't seeing it well or was not getting good pitches to put down and get down onto the ground. That last pop-up was pretty bad and, like I said, let the air out of the balloon in the whole ballpark at that moment. Yeah, just so people understand, sacrifice bunting almost always lowers your run expectancy. It doesn't increase run expectancy. Like if you have what the Nats had, runner on second, nobody out, you have a higher run expectancy than if you have runner on third and one out. Sacrificing the out almost always does you harm as opposed to doing you good. Now, if it's late in the game and you need one run, there is an argument for it. And I suppose if that's what Davey was thinking, but by and large, unless you're talking about a pitcher, sacrifice bunting is like let guys swing away, especially a guy like Victor, who is having a good day overall. That to me is what's so peculiar about this. Davey usually likes to ride guys when they're doing well. And he chose not to initially in that Victor Robles plate appearance. Sure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. It lowers your run expectancy for a big inning, for multiple runs in the inning. It doesn't lower your chances of scoring one run. Man on third, one out is better than man on second, no outs in terms of scoring one run, right? It changes every year. Baseball Prospectus puts out this chart every year. I haven't seen the one yet for this year, but I could double check for it. But I think it's almost always if you sacrifice the out, you've lowered your run expectancy for that inning. That's what it's been historically anyway. Yeah. Okay. And that's why there's always been this thing of like, yeah, it 
kind of looks right. And again, in the in the latter innings of a close game, there is an argument for it because all you need is the one run. And, you know, in that case, it was 3-2 in the seventh inning. So, you know, there is an argument for it. It's not like insane that Davey did that, but I was surprised by that, just, just given the, the day that Victor Robles had been having. You know, it was so strange because, like we said, the offense was so good in game one, 13 runs, 14 hits, seven walks, eight of 15 with runners in scoring position. And then in game two, the Nats ended up going one of 16 with runners in scoring position. I mean, just so odd, so bizarre how you in one game can be so good and the other game be so poor. You know, the Nats, to their credit, hit like about a million doubles over the course of the doubleheader. It was crazy. Like every inning, it felt like the Nats had guys on base, a lot of extra base hits for the Nats in this doubleheader. So it was very good uh, to see that. And there are some guys right now who certainly on Saturday were good and are starting to really do well just beyond like just a narrow focus here. I mean, Nelson Cruz is locked in right now. Nelson Cruz in game one, one for three with a two-run single and two walks. Cruz in game two, two for four with an RBI double and another double. Cesar Hernandez is doing some good things for the Nats right now. He in game one, two for five with a double and a single. Game two, one for four with a double. Uh, Michael Franco continues to get the job done in big spots. Game one, two for five, two-run double and another double. Game two, one for four with a double. So it's like, you know, you saw... Even in the second game, you saw some guys do well. You saw the Nats put themselves in position. Game two really did just come down to, with runners in scoring position, they were just putrid. And they had so many opportunities where all it was going to take was one more hit at the right moment, and they just could not get it for whatever reason. Uh, I agree. I think Nelson Cruz, I know he's not hitting homers, but he's driving the ball to the opposite field. He's coming up with some doubles, so I give him credit. I, I think he's turned a significant corner there. Cabert Ruiz, I like what he's done. You said Cesar Hernandez. Michael Franco continues to, you know, hit doubles and drive in runs in significant moments. So, I mean, that's been good for him. Yadiel Hernandez did hit the home run. The name I haven't mentioned here is Juan Soto. And at this point, this is crazy, but like he's kind of the least productive hitter at the moment (laughs) that they're putting out there. He actually had, by the end of this game, he had the lowest batting average out of anybody in the lineup which is crazy. And that's, of course, not the only reflection of his performance. I'm not trying to claim that it is. But he is still not there. And he's striking out. He's getting called out. He is, I mean, I feel like it's at least two or three times a game. He's taking what he thinks is ball for. He's taken two steps to first base with a little bit of a hop. And then the umpire calls it a strike and he turns around and can't believe it. Whether these are correct calls or not, He's got to realize what this looks like and how it's coming across. The body language is not good. I do not like what I'm seeing from Juan Soto right now. And that's really disappointing to say that. But I think we have to acknowledge that if he was just doing a little bit of what we're used to seeing from him, the whole complexion of the lineup might be completely different right now. Yeah, Juan Soto in this double header. So in game one, he went one for four with a double and a walk. Uh, the double was a one out ground rule double in what was a Nats five run first. And then Soto in game two, 0 for three with a walk. Soto over the first three games of this series has one hit. You know, this is another one of these series so far in which he's either hitless or has like one or two hits. And, you know, to your point, just not doing a lot. Uh, the, you know, there's no question about that. But we saw the Nats homer on Saturday. We had not seen that. It felt like in forever. Not just Robles homering, not just Yadiel homering. Like you said, Riley Adams homered uh, in a spot start for him. He was a starting catcher in game one, a two-run homer that I know initially kind of looked like it might have been a foul. It sort of like hugged 
the left field foul pool, but that was fair, right? And that would that capped the Nats' 13 run output there in Game One. Yeah, yeah, no, and that was good to see from him. Uh, Victor Robles' homer, like that was big for him. It's his first of the year. He had been waiting a long time, and he enjoyed watching it, and he enjoyed flipping his bat on that one. And I think honestly, he kind of earned that in a lot of ways. Now, here's the craziest thing: they've now hit their last six homers have come on the last three Saturdays, and they have not hit any homers on any other day of the week. I don't know. I, don't, I can't explain that. What, is, what in the world? Six homers over their last uh, 15 days, and they're all on those three games on Saturdays only. They're a weird team. They really are. <laughs> with the home runs, with the scoring runs in bunches, and then not scoring at all. I mean, we saw in game one another massive first inning, a five-run first inning, like basically a fifth of the Nats' runs this season have come in first innings. That's usually a sign that you're a good offense because your best batters are hitting, right? But no, they do like all their scoring in first innings and then don't do much the rest of games, although game one, they did do uh, a good bit as that game went on. Yeah, it's, it's a strange offense. Like, it's not as simple as they're a terrible hitting team. Like, it's not as simple as that. It's it's a very nuanced thing. Like, overall, they're not a very good offensive team, but there's a lot of complexity to them not being an overall good offensive team. And I guess that's part of what makes us feel like this still could end up being a decent, if not good, offensive team. Because we see enough sort of signs of competence, if not quality hitting, that you say to yourself, man, this team could go on a run where like for a month, like we saw in June of last year, that the team could catch fire offensively. We haven't seen it yet, and maybe we don't see it this season, but it's not like it's all bad. It's just like there's, it's like frustratingly bad, and it's inconsistent maybe more than anything. Yeah, I, I think it's the inconsistency, but I keep going back to right now. If Juan Soto was, not even just being peak Juan Soto, but just being all right, the way that Cruz is starting to hit, Bell has started to come back a little bit the last few days. I think it would make a huge difference because in a lot of these games, like the nightcap, you're not asking for five more hits. You're asking for probably like two more hits in significant moments, and it might change the entire complexion of it. I don't think they're far off from having a fairly decent lineup or more consistent lineup. But when your best guy is struggling the way that he is, and then prior to more recently, your you know cleanup hitter isn't doing what he's supposed to do either, it's just really hard to produce when the middle of your order isn't doing it. At the moment, kind of everyone else is, and Cruz is starting to do it as well. Now they just got to get their number three hitter figured out because it's kind of killing them. Who knew? Juan Soto, the weak link in the Nats lineup. That's what it is right now. Yeah. It's strange. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflicts. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call them today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself 
on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And the pitch swung on, hit high in there to left field and deep. Thomas going back. He's at the warning track. He's at the wall, and it is gone. Long gone off the video board. CJ Crone with his 13th home run of the year for the Rockies after the back to back singles. That is a three run shot. And the Rockies out in front by the score of three to nothing. The Nats pitching on Saturday certainly is worthy of some conversation here. Aaron Sanchez was a starting pitcher in game one. Joanna Doan was a starting pitcher in game two. Go figure. The game in which you get a good starting outing, you lose. The game in which you get a wretched outing from the starting pitcher, uh, you win. Uh, So let's start with that. Aaron Sanchez in game one of the doubleheader was really bad, and he now has been DFA'd. Uh, The Nats late night on Saturday night announced that they had designated Aaron Sanchez for assignment and kept reliever Andres Machado on their 40-man roster. Uh, Machado earlier in the day had been appointed as the Nats 27th man for the doubleheader. Uh, Sanchez in the 13-7 win over the Rockies on Saturday afternoon, seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. I mean, understand, the Nats scored eight runs over the first two innings, and yet Sanchez didn't even last for four innings. The offense did everything it could to set up Aaron Sanchez to succeed, and he did not succeed. And by the way, if you look this up, Aaron Sanchez has enjoyed a tremendous amount of run support in his start. It's interesting how this has played out. Adone actually hasn't. You know, not that Adone's been perfect, but he routinely has been given like no runs with which to work. Sanchez has been given a boatload of runs, got a bunch of runs again on Saturday. Seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, six singles. He did issue no walks. He did have three strikeouts, which by his standards was a lot, through 51 strikes versus 24 balls. But he gave up the big one-out three-run homer to C.J. Crone for a 3-0 Rockies lead in the top of the first, during which he allowed three runs on three consecutive one-out hits. And now he's been DFA'd, ERA of 8.33 over seven starts. And so the question becomes, well, the Nats need a number five starter. Now, they could sort of piecemeal it together for a while with Paolo Espino and Josh Rogers, but this would seem to suggest 
that they anticipate Steven Strasburg being back at the major league level sooner rather than later? Would you agree with that or not necessarily? Well, I don't think they're going to rush Strasburg any faster. You know, they want to make sure that he gets the appropriate amount uh, of work in his rehab. Now, on Sunday, he's going back to Fredericksburg for his second rehab start, same place he threw his first one. He is scheduled for four or five innings and up to as many as about 70 pitches. I suppose in a best-case scenario, if he got to 5 and 70, then he can make one more start after that and maybe be ready. I kind of feel like just because the first one, even though he felt good, the results weren't good, and he's still kind of feeling his way, he didn't throw a lot of innings, I feel like there's probably three more to go instead of two more to go, ideally. But let's see. Let's see how he does on Sunday. That'll probably help determine the path there of what they're going to do. This is a little complicated because even if they don't make the move with Sanchez, they're going to need a fill-in starter at some point in the Mets series coming up because of the doubleheader where you have six games in five days. So five-man rotation, somebody else has to make a start. They could, like you said, try Josh Rogers or Paolo Espino, although neither of them has been stretched out in quite a while. I don't think either one of them has thrown more than 50 pitches in like a month. So I don't know how much you can reasonably expect. Maybe you try to pair them up together and get you know six total innings out of them or something like that. I don't know. But that would be for at least one start. Strasburg, we said, a little further away. And then there's Cade Cavalli, who had a great start, his best start of the year, on Saturday night for Rochester. Seven scoreless innings, only two hits, only 70 pitches. I think this is the deepest he's gone in any minor league start that I can remember over the last couple of years. 1-2, swung on and tipped into the catcher's mid, 99 again, strike three. Cade Cavalli can make things happen. I don't know that one start like that is enough to convince club officials that he's ready. Last I had asked some people about him, they felt like he was still learning how to pitch a little bit, and they wanted to make sure that whenever they make this move, they feel like it's for good and they don't want to bring him up here, have him struggle and have to worry about sending him back down. But he made a pretty big statement Saturday night, and it just so coincides with the same day that Sanchez made his now last start for the organization. So it's something to keep an eye on five days from now. Uh, where is Cade Cavalli pitching? Yeah, I mean, he's only a few starts removed from getting destroyed and having an ERA over seven. He's been better over his last few outings. Maybe that's enough for him to be summoned to the majors. Although, off what you've been saying, it kind of felt like, no, they want to make sure that, like he's good and ready before they call him up. So it's interesting. I mean, look, Aaron Sanchez, it was becoming completely pointless to keep putting him out there. He was not doing well. He's a road to nowhere. You know, they, they took a flyer on him with a minor league deal. There's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't work out. You know, best of luck to him. But obviously, you don't DFA a guy without having a plan in the back of your mind of what you're going to be doing next. Now, Maybe Paolo and Josh are the way to go for now, and then you figure it out in a week or two. But you would think they have in the back of their mind who they're eyeing here, whether it's Strasburg or Cavalli. Is there anyone else? Is there someone we haven't mentioned who they might be thinking of, or is this really just about Strasburg or Cavalli at this point? So there's not much. I mean, they were hoping Joe Ross was going to be in this conversation, but he clearly is not. And we still haven't heard the official word on him, but all the signs continue to point to him needing elbow surgery again. Anibal Sanchez is here. He's been playing catch on flat ground, but he's got a ways to go. So he's not all of a sudden about to be ready. There are only two other starting pitchers who are currently on their 40-man roster in the minor leagues. Neither of these are names most people have heard of. Uh, there's one at AAA named Corey Abbott, who they recently acquired off waivers 
from the Giants. He had also then come from the Cubs. He has a, a little bit of big league experience. He's only made one start at last check at Rochester. He hasn't really been stretched out that much. Uh, you know, he's on the roster if they want to do that, but um, I don't know that that's somebody they're really eyeing as a, you know, solution for anything in the long term. And then there's a left-hander at Double A, Evan Lee, uh, who was added to the 40-man roster last winter, a guy they like, but pretty inexperienced. He's just been at Double A for the first time this year. And I don't gather that they would want to promote him that quickly like that. Now, Sanchez being DFA'd clears a spot on the 40-man roster, so they could pick somebody else like Cavalli or someone else who isn't currently on the 40-man. There's a kid named Jackson Tetro at AAA who's kind of been their workhorse there. It's not spectacular, but he's been okay. Not a guy you hear a lot about as a you know significant prospect for them. And then keep in mind, they've got all these guys on the 60-day IL who eventually are going to come off, and they all need roster spots as well. So there's a lot of ways they could go here, but there isn't really the obvious one, at least at this moment. And that's why, frankly, I'm a little surprised they made the move with Sanchez now because there isn't that obvious ready-right-now option. I thought he'd wind up getting another start or two until Strasburg is ready or until Cavalli sort of forces the issue because there is not that one bona fide slam-dunk replacement waiting in the wings. Now, maybe you just say, hey, Paolo Espino, we're barely using you anyways. Let's put you back in the rotation see what you can do for us. You were good last year. Maybe that's the answer. Prior to them DFAing Sanchez, I was going to bring that up. What are we doing anymore with Aaron Sanchez? Can't we at least have Paolo Espino start these games? I mean, it's it's poke your eyes out at this point with Aaron Sanchez. Do you think it's possible Mike Rizzo is going to bring someone in from outside the organization? I mean, the Chicago White Sox just DFA Dallas Keuchel. I mean, the Nats are a rebuilding team, but we know they're in love with guys in their 30s. So I don't know. Is it possible Rizzo was eyeing someone from outside the organization? I guess you never say never. Keuchel was not pitching well, and you saw how much money the White Sox just ate on a guy who's in the last year of his contract. So, again, you could get him for the big league minimum if you wait a few days and he uh, clears waivers, which he probably will. But you're really kind of just hoping for a miracle there with him. And if I remember right, a couple years ago when they pursued Patrick Corbin, he was clearly the top lefty free agent on the market that winter, and Keuchel was number two. And a lot of people thought, well, if they don't sign Corbin, then they'll go after Keuchel. The sense I got at the time was that they were not all that high on Keuchel. They thought already at that point he was on the downside of his career and not the pitcher that he was at his peak for the Astros. So you never say never, and Mike Rizzo's excellent at playing his cards close to his vest, so I don't want to completely shoot down that possibility, but I think I would say I'd be surprised if that was the impetus for this. We mentioned, by the way, Cade Cavalli starting on Saturday night, and it was great for AAA Rochester. Also starting on Saturday night, Cole Henry for AA Harrisburg. Four scoreless, hitless, and walkless innings, four strikeouts. Cole Henry now this season has an ERA of 0.76 and a whip of 0.59 over seven starts for Harrisburg. His stock is soaring, and it's AA. Cavalli was excellent at AA, and it's been a different story at AAA. So, you know, you got to sort of calm down. But it's exciting to see Cole Henry, especially for this team, right, a pitching-starving team, do as well as Henry has done so far this season. And, um, you know, I know he's never necessarily been viewed as like some top-notch prospect, but he was a second-round pick in 2020. Maybe by this time next year, we're getting amped up for the Major League debut of Cole Henry. 
I think it could happen before the end of this year. I do. From what I've been told about him, you're right. He's not that blow-you-away, top-of-the-rotation guy, but he's very polished. It was a college pitcher at a big program, and I think they they feel pretty high on him in terms of somebody who could move up fairly quickly. He's mature for the the lack of you know experience. He doesn't have a lot of professional experience, but he's pretty mature and advanced as a pitcher. The sign will be when they promote him to AAA. Do they wait much longer? Do they wait till the All-Star break? Do they do it relatively soon? And then, like you said, as we saw with Cavalli last year, when that move was made, he struggled facing more advanced hitters. Does that happen? If it doesn't, if Henry's having success at AAA, I definitely think he is a, a candidate for a later in the season promotion. We're not talking June, July. We're talking August, September, potentially for him. Okay. So you think if he did well at AAA this year, we could see him at the major league level? I think so. I mean, that's a few steps still he has to take, and they're definitely watching his innings. He was pulled after four innings, 40 pitches, because he has not thrown a lot. But that also says to me they're trying to conserve his innings to get him through the whole year, maybe because they would like him to make some starts up here by the end of the season. Yeah, well, good. I mean, it's nice to have something like that to chew on with what's happening uh, at the major league level with the Nats this season. Well, Yoan Adon was good on Saturday. Let's give him credit here. Uh, this came in the 3-2 loss to the Rockies in game two of the doubleheader. Two runs, both of which were unearned in six innings. Now, he was Eric Fetty-like in putting a lot of guys on base, but Adon also was 2022 Eric Fetty-like in limiting the runs given up. Now, Adon gave up six hits, but all of them were singles. He did issue two walks and a hit by pitch. He only had three strikeouts, but he threw strikes. He threw 62 strikes versus 27 balls over 89 pitches. And the one inning in which he allowed runs, really, this was about his defense failing him more than anything. Top of the 30 gives up two runs, both of which are unearned thanks to two errors by the Nats. Uh, Brian Servin reached base on a one-out grounder to Michael Franco, who committed a throwing error and making a bad throw to Josh Bell. Adone gave up a two-out RBI single to Yonatan Daza to center field. And then Daza advanced a second on a throwing error by Victor Robles, who threw home despite really having no chance of getting Servin at home. And then Robles' throw ricocheted off the pitcher's mound. And then Adone gave up a two-out RBI single to Charlie Blackman on an 0-2 pitch. But otherwise, Adone was good. I mean, you know, he walked the tightrope a bit, top of the fourth. He tosses a scoreless fourth, despite giving up a leadoff single and issuing two walks. So certainly wasn't dominant, but, you know, it's been a rough goal of it here for Yohan Adone. And so if you're Davey Martinez, you love seeing this. Six innings, zero earned runs, navigating his way out of trouble. This is one of those starts where we say, okay, this is why Yohan Adon is in the rotation here. He shows you enough to feel like there's more to be seen here. Right. And we've seen this a handful of times now where you can say, yeah, you look at the overall numbers and they're really not impressive at all, but there have been individual starts and individual moments within starts that you do see the potential there. And this one is pretty high on the list, I would say, uh, for that. The two runs were unearned, so not totally his fault, obviously. And he made some big pitches at some big times, and I really liked the sixth inning. Back-to-back singles to start the inning, a sack bunt, now it's second and third, one out, and you know he's probably approaching the finish line, somebody's warming in the bullpen, and he goes back-to-back strikeouts of Servin and then Connor Joe. The last one humped up to 97 miles an hour on his last pitch, caught him looking, he painted the corner, and he showed some emotion as he hopped off the mound. That was a Max Scherzer-style close it out start, you know? Max always said the last 10 pitches define your start. That's kind of what Adone did there. Not comparing him to Max Scherzer in the bigger picture here, of course, but the way he did that, the mound presence he had, the ability to finish strong, 
and sense that the finish line was coming. I, I thought that was a nice example of what he can be. There's a lot of smoothing that needs to be done around the edges with Johanna Doan. But there's enough there that you say we want to keep seeing more of it, even if the overall numbers are not great. And that's why you see Sanchez being the one to get DFA'd, even though Adone's numbers, at least coming into the day, were kind of similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, we don't know with Adone, but I do wonder if a year from now, if he's pitching well, we look back on this year and say, yeah, it wasn't great, but man, he accumulated a lot of experiences and he learned from these things. And, you know, I think like maybe the most important thing for Yohan Adone here is that he now has made 10 starts. By all indications, he's healthy. If he can be good enough, show enough to make 30 starts this season, that's invaluable experience, even if the numbers don't end up being pretty. And, I, th- I you know, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But I think there's something to be said for that where you're just out there and you're learning and we're seeing him. He gets better. I mean, it's not a linear thing, right? He'll, he'll look good for a start and then he'll look bad for a start. But like that overall trajectory, you want to see an upward movement. And I do feel like we are seeing that at least to some extent. Are we seeing enough of it? It's hard to say. You know, he's had some clunkers. There's no doubt about that. But this was, I thought, overall pretty good uh, with what we saw from him on Saturday evening. So nice to see that from Yoan Adon. I tell you, the Nats bullpen overall was good in this doubleheader. Game one, three Nats relievers combined for five and a third scoreless innings. Now, Erasmo Ramirez uh, did begin his outing by giving up back-to-back singles, including a two-out RBI single by Charlie Blackman in Iraqis, three-run fourth. So he officially tossed two scoreless innings, allowed an inherited runner to score okay. But he, Carl Edwards Jr., and Victor Arano combined for five and a third shutout innings. And then in game two of the doubleheader, three relievers combined for one run in three innings. Uh, Yes, Kyle Finnegan did give up the run in the top of the seventh, but they came on three straight two-out singles. It's not like he got hammered that hard or anything. And then Steve Ciszek tossed a perfect top of the eighth and a scoreless top of the ninth. Don't look now, but Nats relievers this season have combined to put an ERA fourth of 392, which overall is not great. But for this team, with its bullpen history, I think most people would have signed up for it this deep into the season, have a bullpen ERA under four, especially with how much the bullpen has been leaned on. So I don't want to dress this up like the Nats have a dominant bullpen. They don't, but I think we're seeing more good than bad from the bullpen. I thought we saw that again on Saturday. Yeah, a lot more good than bad. Remember the other day I mentioned when the staff, the bullpen total ERA was 411, but when you eliminate Austin Voth, who we know has struggled a lot and hasn't pitched in a while now, and that one crazy D. Strange Gordon position player appearance, it dropped from 411 to 338, I think. So you would think it's gone down even more now. I haven't run the numbers again. You're probably talking low threes now for the rest of that group. So yes, as a whole, they have been very good despite the number of innings they've had to throw. I know it didn't work out, but I liked using Finnegan there in the seventh inning of the tie game. It was against the heart of the lineup. Again, three straight, two out singles. Make of that what you will. But like Rainey the other night, I liked how Davey picked one of his best relievers for what at the moment was the highest leverage spot. The result wasn't what you wanted, but I liked the thought process. Yeah, absolutely. Buck Showalter has a saying, don't judge a decision by the results. I think there's a lot of merit to that. Like just because a decision doesn't work out doesn't mean it was the bad, the wrong decision. And I think that's one of those examples there. Like, okay, you did what you should have done. Didn't work out. That doesn't mean that that was uh, the wrong way to go. But Good to see that with the Nats bullpen, you know, kind of a sneaky positive. I mean, it's a pseudo positive, but, you know, in this season in which you're searching for positives, I think we're seeing more good than bad from the bullpen 
uh, like we just outlined. So a lot of baseball for the Nats on Saturday. They, of course, will continue on Sunday with game four of this series, a 135 start. And it's a Josiah Gray start. And, you know, I don't want to like overhype any one game for this team in late May, right? But he needs a good outing. This is not good, what's been happening with Josiah Gray. His numbers have cratered now with what's happened with him over his last few starts. I mean, for a while, he was the Nats' best starting pitcher this season. That's no longer the case. That's now Eric Fetty's championship belt to hold. And, you know, we saw him get in a rut last year, and he had a hard time getting out of it, although he did eventually get out of it. You'd like for this rut, quote unquote, to only be like a two or three star thing. You don't want this to be like a five or six star thing. So I think this is kind of a big spot for Josiah Gray on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I agree. You'd like to see that more encouraging outing that he finishes strong and keeps the ball in the yard. And I'm looking at the forecast. It's going to be a little warmer on Sunday, low 80s. Uh, maybe the wind blowing out a little bit. We know the home run has been such an issue for him. He's going to have to keep the ball in the yard. We know the Rockies know how to hit home runs, especially at home. I do think it's kind of an important start for him to reshape the narrative a little bit, get back on track, and not leave us all wondering, well, what exactly is going on here with Josiah Gray? Yeah, you want to see him ascend and... uh it's been a little bumpy here lately, so we'll see. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers. Again, the email address, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on both 1061 ESPN in Richmond and on Sports Radio 96.5 FM and 8.50 AM in the Hampton Roads area. You can listen to those stations online at ESPNRichmond.com and Sports Radio 965 FM.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chatter, courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And here's a swing by Adams and a drive to deep left. Down the line. If it's fair, it is gone and going, going, gone. Goodbye. Riley Adams on the first pitch he sees from Robert Stevenson. Blasts his third home run of the year. Nationals add two here in the bottom of the eighth inning. It's now Washington 13 and Colorado 7.